I'm glad I found out Denise takes four-mile walks you know, before she ever invites me. Like, come oh, on, let's take a little walk. Nah, I'm good. I know how you roll. Um, I'm really excited to get into the Word this morning. Um, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel. We're continuing our sermon series, Applying the Gospel, and we're going to be looking at Matthew 21, the passage that describes the significant event that we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday. And every year looking at this passage is astounding to be reminded yet again and to see fresh and new things regarding this really strange day. Let's read the scriptures. Matthew 21, verse 1 and onward, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you, have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people, to gather before your word, and to come with expectant, prayerful hearts that you would speak to us. Lord, meet us today. We've come here for you. Holy Spirit, would you glorify Jesus, reveal him to each and every one of us, speak to us. And may we grow in our love and our affection for you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, looking at this text now for many years, I became a Christian September 26, 1994. I was 14 years old. I'm uh, 42, and it's been a while. <laughs> Looking at this text every year and looking at it again, man, the question that just came up is so striking to me is, how does riding on a donkey get you killed? 
It, it's on the surface, this doesn't add up, it, especially considering that Rome was the most powerful empire on earth, and the Caesars were unmatched in their ruthlessness, yet they were triggered by the slightest provocations. The slightest gesture that threatened their sense of power was met with incredible force. And what's interesting is that if you read the gospel accounts, actually Jesus was almost killed a couple of times by the religious leaders. There's one instance in particular, they were trying to rush him and basically throw him off a cliff. I think of that passage often when before I get up to preach, say, you know, no matter how bad this Sunday is, at least I'm not preaching on a cliff. Um, it, it, the, the things that Jesus faced by these religious leaders multiple times, yet they were unsuccessful in taking his life. But what ends up triggering Jesus being killed was this act. It, it's important to note that Jesus was not killed because he told people to love one another, though that stirred some stuff up. Jesus wasn't killed because he challenged the religious leaders and their conception of Sabbath and the law, and, and he challenged their man-made traditions that they often put on the same level as the law of God. That stirred stuff up. They almost killed him. But what ends up killing Jesus, what triggers what we know to be as Good Friday, is this act because at this moment, this was far more significant than Jesus just riding on a donkey. It far more significant than an act of pageantry and a worship service out loud or in public. This was an act of treason to Rome. The disciples knew it. The disciples knew there's no turning back from this moment. And they were right. Because just a few days later, he hangs on a cross. And this was the moment that triggered Rome to say, we might have to pay attention to this guy. And we, we can't let this go unchecked. You know, right now, the weather's getting warmer. But remember, New York is tricky. Uh, New York will uppercut us out of nowhere, like, oh, it's good, put the winter coat in there. Boom, 15 inches of snow. So don't get too happy. Pace yourself accordingly. But right now, if you went into the supermarket and you saw a deal on shovels, you'd be like, I mean, that's great. But unless you're one of those proactive planners, some of you got excited in your seats. Oh, my gosh, yes. Next winter, I'm good. I get it now. And in fact, after church, you're like, hey, let's go check, see if we can pick up shovels. <laughs> but if you saw a sale on that right now, you would be like, man, that's cool, but not urgent, not needed. I often feel that way when I talk to people that don't follow Jesus and they hear things that we say, like, Jesus saves. Jesus can save you. And they're like, if I needed a savior, that might be really great. But I, I don't feel like I need a savior. This thing you call sin, I don't even agree with it. I, I, so what do I need saving from? And what I realize is that it's actually, if you don't think you need to be rescued, a savior becomes obsolete. 
And, and, and furthermore, the teachings of Jesus can easily be stacked right alongside the teachings of any other faith. We can accept them or reject them quite easily. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus wasn't riding in saying, I'm here to save you. Jesus was riding in declaring, I am king. And this is what triggers Rome to kill him. He revealed himself at this moment as a king, and he's riding toward the cross eventually as a king. Not just any king, we read that he fulfills this prophecy that was foretold that a king would be riding in on a, donk on a donkey, gentle, humble. And so we're seeing this incredible display because in that time of history, kings would often ride in on donkeys after a victory. And that was important because after a victory, they conquered a city, they would have this pageantry where they would basically show the spoils of war and they would parade it. A lot of times they would carry the defeated king in a cart showing everybody as they're coming into a city, I am victorious. And one of the practical reasons why they would ride a donkey is because you don't, at that moment while you're trying to floss your power, run the risk of a horse kicking you off because a serpent scares it. A donkey would be unflinched. It wouldn't buck. It wouldn't send you off. It would hold its, pay, hold its, its, its uh, balance and more than likely just stomp the, the cobra or the snake out while keeping the king looking all regal. Have you ever had an embarrassing moment when you were trying to look good? You know, the king was trying to avoid that. Riding on a donkey. So it had been associated with this is the animal, the beast that you ride on when you're trying to look regal, declare stability, power, show your ability to conquer and defeat your enemies. And what's amazing is Jesus does this before the cross. Before he faces the enemy of death and sin and conquers it, he declares, I'm victorious. I'm not going toward the cross with any speculation as to how this is going to pan out. I'm going toward the cross declaring, I am king. And I have rule and reign over what's to come. In another passage in the Gospels, Jesus says, no one's taking my life. I lay it down. He's coming into Jerusalem as a king, declaring that he's king, that he's victorious, even before he faces his enemies. But not just any king, a king that would die for his subjects a king that would lay down his life for those that he would rule. But let's be clear, Jesus wasn't crucified because the world didn't want a savior. He was killed because they didn't want him as king. If we could bring it back to us, and we could be honest for a moment, you know, the best place to be honest is in the presence of God. It's like the worst place to lie because the truth is already known. <laughs> it's like, no, God, I'm not sad. Ah, uh, you kind of are, you know. 
best place to be honest is in the presence of God. And if we're honest, we really want an advisor. We want a God who's a consultant. We want a God who's a genie. We don't want a king. We want a God that we could come to and say, here are my decisions, would you bless them? We want a God that co-signs all of our thoughts. Says, God, I want to do this. Clearly, you would never contradict me because you exist to satisfy my every whim and comfort. We want a God that serves us rather than one that we serve. A God who never tells us no. A God who never checks us. A God who hates the same people we hate. A God who votes the same way we vote. We don't want a king. We want someone that looks and feels and thinks like us. We want an oversized version of us that never checks us and humbles us. So as much as it's easy to judge Rome and, and, and be disgusted by the murder, at the end of the day, if we search our hearts, our hearts are just as repellent to King Jesus as Rome was. We want Savior Jesus. We want Consultant Jesus. We don't want King Jesus. But as we look at this text, and as I looked at this text again fresh, I realized that I have not in the past appreciated fully the crowd of people and what they're doing. Here's why I haven't appreciated it. And maybe you've heard sermons like this. I might have preached a couple of sermons like this. And so maybe you've thought this. This crowd in just a couple days are going to go from Hosanna to crucify him. Wow, that's fickle. I mean, if you've ever been ghosted by someone, it's like, man, I thought we were friends, and then now all of a sudden, this is a series of events that have changed quite fast. You went from worshiping to now you're like in the crowd, yeah, crucified. Like that is an amazing. So the crowd, I often judge them. It's like, man, I wish I would have been in that crowd. I'm like, yo, bro, last week you were here. What are you doing? But as I pause and realize if I don't judge them, what's happening here that might be worth reflecting on? And when we sit with what's happening here, something profound emerges. We've been in this series talking about this idea of applying the gospel, this idea that for us, we're looking at things that we normally just celebrate once a year, like uh, Christmas, the Incarnation, or Good Friday, or, or Resurrection Sunday, or Pentecost Sunday, with these big, amazing moments that tell God's story, and that we often just kind of apply it once a year at most, but what if we applied this daily? What if we revisited these truths and sat with them and worshiped there and let them get ingrained? And if we look at this text, what would it look like to apply the gospel to our hearts, looking at Palm Sunday that's part of the story of God, that's part of the good news of Jesus, 
what emerges from the crowd before they turn, if we just look at them and say, if we just look at and judge them at this moment and don't see how the movie ends, if we just look at them right now and say, what is happening here that we could learn from? Applying the gospel looks like surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. Surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. Can you say that with me? Surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. One of the most fascinating things, uh, like I said, I became a Christian when I was 14, and for many years, especially in college, I felt like I was this odd man out, like I was like in a sea of intellectual people and bright people that I was like this weird guy that would go and worship you know, and everybody else is secular and, and li- living their life without God. And I was this guy that was just, the difference was I worship something you guys don't. Until the mystery of that popped and realized, actually, we're all worshipers. There's not one human being that's breathing that is not a worshiper. We are all living from a place of adoring something as supreme, loving something Positioning something or someone at the center of our lives and considering that thing the foundational core thing from which our lives would crumble if it was taken out. Every single person alive is a worshiper. The question is, what or whom are we worshiping? And at this moment, the crowd is worshiping Jesus. And they're worshiping Jesus in a really noteworthy, powerful way. It says in the text that the crowd, part of this moment of worship, wasn't just saying Hosanna and declaring words. There was a physical gesture that they did. They they, they littered the road with palm branches as King Jesus rode in on a donkey. But in particular, they took off their robes and laid them on the ground. And so now the king was riding in riding over their vestments, their clothing. And that is powerfully significant when we think of what actually worship is. Because in that act, we see the king riding over, having reign, having authority, having power, dominion, being above their individual identities. See, back then it's not too different from now where clothing says something about you. You know, you've ever heard that expression, don't dress for the job you want, uh, but for the job that you, the job you have, rather the job you want, that your clothes communicate something about you and, and it, like whether you want to fit in, whether you want to stick out, whether you want to climb the ladder. Uh, your clothes also speak often of your, your money or the money you're trying to uh, falsely show off, show off that you have. And so I grew up in the hood. I knew people that wore $2,000 clothes on them on the, for a day. And, and then they lived with roaches that would like be enough to carry a human being down the block. And so it, it, but clothing, whether you have it or you're trying to floss like you have it, communicates something about your status, your stature, who you are, your identity. And at this moment, Jesus is riding over their robes as they praised him. His lordship is physically being demonstrated over their individual identities. 
And oh my gosh, do I feel that that is so fitting for the moment that we live in. At a time in our lives where human beings are creating identities for ourselves, it seems like every minute there's new ways that we express who we are, and we do that independently from God. We don't do that in, in conversation with him. We don't do that under his lordship. We do that often in defiance. And at this moment, we see a picture of worship where it's beyond just songs. We sang this morning, and that's part of worship. That's an expression of worship, but worship goes far deeper. If the songs we sing doesn't line up with the submission of our hearts, then we just sang songs. If the words we declare don't resonate and come from a heart that's bowed to his lordship, then it might have just been emotionalism with some religious wording. At this moment, we see a picture from the fickle crowd, and actually, that's something that's endearing me even more about this text is because as much as I've wanted to judge this crowd, when I'm honest, I'm the president of fickle crowds. <laughs> oh, how I've been fickle at times, how I've been hot and then cold, how I've been faithful, then doubting. I know I'm alone in this. I know none of you could resonate with that experience. Some of you are like, oh man, Google more resilient pastor. I got to find one. Hope a story apparently has this guy that he admits his struggles. I'm sorry to burst the bubble. This crowd is very much, I could resonate, and, and, but yet it doesn't take away from the, from the clarity of what's happening at that moment. That worship goes far deeper than just words. Worship, for it to be worship, has to involve us submitting the core of who we are under his lordship. Say, I will be who you say I am. I will live my life under your rule. I won't come to you with preconceived plans and notions and expect you to bless them and never check me and never say no. No, I'll come to you as a servant. Worship is seen that way in this moment. The gentle king rides over our identities and says, I'm Lord of who you are. So I looked at this passage, it reminded me, it made me revisit a significant passage in the New Testament. Actually, from this passage, we derive so much theology, so much thinking, so much practice in the church around what it means to see someone initiated into the faith. I love what Pastor Denise shared where she recalled, and even the song that we sang, the idea of when we began. How many remember when you began to follow Jesus? I tell you, that song brought me back. Because when I began to follow Jesus, we had these things called cassette tapes. Listen up, Alexa. I'm giving you a history lesson. There's these things before CDs, MP3s, streaming. There was these fascinating things called cassette tapes. And you would put them in a cassette player. And it was this little plastic film that had music on it. It was magical. No one understood how it happened. But you put it in a tape deck. You press play. So we would be worshiping. I was a teenager. Worshiping. Pressed play. Be singing our heart out. It was like, come on, let's play that again. Hit rewind. And then you don't know when it's stopping. So then you press play again. 
no, 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 rewind it more. Oh, we were so low budget. So ghetto. I was so hungry for Jesus when I think back. It's absolutely beautiful. How do you begin this journey to follow Jesus? The scriptures actually give us the starting point. You want to know what the scriptures say, how a person should begin their journey with Jesus? What makes you a Christian? What gives you faith? What starts you on this journey? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 11 says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. It's amazing. What, what this text teaches us is that it's professed faith in Jesus as our Savior and Justifier is expressed through professed faith as G, to Jesus as King and Lord. In other words, if I believe Jesus hung on the cross to justify me of my sins, to cleanse me, to make me holy before the presence of God. The way I express that belief is not to say Jesus is my Savior. It's to profess that Jesus is my King, my Lord. We call on to him as Lord. You know, yesterday I had this unplanned moment. I was taking my son to go play with his two younger cousins, kind of get that boy energy out. And so took him to Brooklyn, and in the car, he's in the back seat, uh, my seven-year-old, and he says, Dad, never know what's going to happen after that. <laughs> so what has he been thinking? Because he was quiet. He said, when the power of God hits evil people, do they become good? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I had to steady the wheel. I was like, uh, you know, because I pray for these moments. I was like, Lord, in regular conversation, you know, it's what Deuteronomy 6 says, when you're in the home, when you just talk of the law of God. And so I pray for these moments. I'm like, how do I navigate this? And so I said, well, uh, Michael, well, what we understand from the Bible, you know, when you say the power of God, actually, we have a clear definition of what the power of God is. He's like, what's that? So Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. So I said, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the power of God. And so if an evil person, as you said, encounters the power of God, they can be changed. He said, what's gospel? <laughs> so, oh, okay. And he said, and then well, I was about to answer him, and then he stopped me. He said, oh, I know. It's those four books, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I said, oh, yeah, those are, those are called the gospels, yes, that's in the New Testament. Um, I said, but you know what the word gospel means? I said, what? I said, it means good news. Said, so it's good news that Jesus would die for us and resurrect and that he would be our king. He said, Dad, that's amazing news. <laughs> our faith in this amazing news is expressed not when we just call Jesus our Savior, but when we call him our Lord our master. I have a friend that he shared with me um, 
He's an older gentleman, so his kids now are older. But when they were young, teenage boy was giving him a hard time. Basically, whenever he would go out to work, he would hide his car keys, and somehow his son was like a detective, and he would find them. So he'd get home from work and discover that his son went on joy rides with the car and got into a few accidents, thousands of dollars. And he described just the gut-wrenching experience of having to confront his son for a long time, repeatedly, and basically, because it, it got to the point where his son made copies of the keys, it was just crazy. And he used to describe this moment where finally they came head to head, and he said, give me the keys, all the keys, all of them. The son gave him all the keys. Now, give me every dollar you have that could be used to make a copy of a key. Give it to me. Give me every credit card. Like, and it was this moment where the son finally rendered full control. We begin our faith journey in a similar posture. Rendering control. Surrendering to the one who hung and died on the cross. I'll never forget a friend who moved me so powerfully when he shared his journey in battling alcoholism. He was a very talented man, incredibly gifted. The opportunities that he was afforded in life were immense. He went to some of the best schools. Um, his talents took him all over the world. And yet, every 15th day of the month, every 30th day of the month, there was a big question that was on the horizon. Will he go and spend it all? and his family not see him for a couple of days. He would go on these incredible benders, and it was awful. He called me at a pivotal moment. He was actually just about to jump off a bridge. Ran to meet him. We talked, and we met for a while. The pivotal moment in his life was when he finally realized his powerlessness. I didn't know this. Apparently, there's a pill that's given to people that are trying to come off of um, alcohol addiction, that if you take this pill and then make the bad decision of getting drunk later, you will violently throw up. So the pill is, in, is in, in created to kind of remind you, you don't want to do this, and if you do this, you're going to pay the consequences. He had a ritual every morning. Imagine a grown man accomplished. Everywhere he went, people knew him. And every morning he would come to the kitchen in humility, meet his wife, and she would give him the pill. And he would take it often with tears in his eyes saying, I can't believe how powerless I am. But actually when he admitted his powerlessness to it and submitted to it, freedom began. Many years now, and his family is thriving. His life is being rebuilt more and more. And at the epicenter of that was this daily sacred moment of acknowledging, I'm not in charge. I'm powerless. I need help. In our walk with God, that's what it means to be submitted to the kingship of Jesus. Surrendering to his lordship. It's a daily 
application of that truth. Like, I'm powerless. I'm not in control. I don't have it all together. I need you. I surrender to you. I can't do this on my own. Christian strength and maturity looks like an ever-increasing acknowledgement of your utter dependence on Jesus. Not like your, your chest gets broader. Actually, your knees get lower. The more you mature, the more you realize, I can't do this apart from him. But the text doesn't just end with Jesus riding in on a donkey and declaring himself as king and the crowds praising him. It ends with him going to the temple, and we're told he begins to flip tables. One gospel account says he fashioned the whip and began to whip people out of the temple. Oh, what I have, I would have loved to have been there to see that gentle Jesus whipping people out of the temple. Because what we understand is that these folks had violated the sacred space of God's temple. We don't have time to go into all the details. I encourage you to do a Bible study on it. But what's clear and powerful for us to sit with as we close is that the lordship of Jesus doesn't just save us from gross, heinous, broken things that we easily associate with brokenness in this world and that clearly God wants to redeem us from those things. It also redeems us from religiosity, from the false view that our external behavior in the name of Jesus, that that saves us. I got news for every single one of us. If you're thinking that by coming to church regularly that saves you, let me lovingly burst that bubble this morning. None of our religious acts saves us. None of the things that we do to be spiritual save us. They don't have that power. Jesus alone, and in many ways when Jesus turns the table and clears the temple, he was giving a statement. Don't put your faith in these things to save you because, as is demonstrated here, these things can easily become corrupted. But I won't be corrupted. I alone can save you. Lordship under me is the only pathway to be saved and be transformed. Do we want you to be faithful to come and be engaged and be in community? Absolutely. But let's put reality in perspective. Church won't save you. Religiosity won't save you. And that's good news because if we treat it that way, we won't put expectations on it that should never be placed on it. It's important. It's central. It's core. But it's not salvific. Only the cross. Only the lordship of Jesus can we confidently put our trust in. So the worship team comes forward. Can I invite us to stand? And as we stand, could we raise our hands in the presence of God? It's a posture of surrender. So we turn our hearts to God. What would it look like in these next moments to mimic the crowd and say, Jesus, here's my identity. Here's who I am, who I believe I am, who I want to be, and I submit it to you. Be Lord over my life, over my thoughts, over my dreams, my hopes. Be king, not just savior. Be king over my life. 
What does it look like for you to bow to the kingship of Jesus this morning, but to continue to apply that truth? As we worship God in these next few moments, the prayer team is in the back to my left and your right. I can't encourage you enough. Last week, incredible testimonies of the spirit at work from the prayer team. They're sharing just powerful things. It was encouraging to see uh, a strong uh, response to that invitation. As we worship in these next few moments, you can slip out of your seat and receive prayer for anything the message might have stirred or anything you need that you're carrying today. Let's worship God in these next few moments. Let's turn to Jesus together.